when some of you know, or maybe all of you know, that I have an art background, and for some reason that automatically tags me as someone who knows everything there is to know about art museums and the artwork which is hanging in, in there. So uh, my mom and dad, when they visited art museums with me, inevitably there comes a point where we're standing in front of a picture or something and they ask me, now Brian, what is the artist trying to do here? What do you think is going on here? And I'll give you a little secret. I don't always know the answer. <laughs> I really don't know the answer sometimes. But uh, I've had the opportunity to study a picture which uh, deals with the passage that we were just reading through, Genesis chapter 40. And so I kind of have a little bit of an advantage over you all in terms of having looked at the picture and uh, studied it. And I thought that would be nice for us to take a look at it ourselves. Now, if you have, uh, I've made these available. And I was hoping that you might have had a chance to look at them before, look at the picture before, uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, had a chance to look at it. But um, this, this was done by an artist who is unknown. We don't know who this artist was. How they refer to him is, is the, the, um, the expert on the, um, sorry, not the expert, <laughs> the master of the story of Joseph. So evidently there's several paintings done on the life of Joseph that are similar, and they figured that it was all done by the same artist. And um, so since they don't know his name, they make him known by saying, okay, well, he's the guy that did all these paintings that look alike. It was done in about the year 1500. So I want to give you a couple minutes as you look at this. The thing about interpretation is, is that it always starts with questions. There's question as to why is this like this? What was trying to be said? And ultimately, what do you think is the meaning of this picture? So as you look at this picture in your hands, I want to invite you to just kind of um, ask some questions that you might see that are curious or something that you notice that uh, is uh, out of place or whatever. But what are some of the things that you are observing in this picture as you look at it? And I have this one here, too, if you want to refer to it. This is in color, so I'll see a little better. But um, I invite you to ask you some questions. Go this way. I'm not sure uh, where the picture takes place, if it's a bedroom or a kitchen, because there's a bed. Okay, so where is the location at? Mm -hmm. Okay. I know we've only read through the passage once. So, but the story hopefully should be familiar, but is there anything else that you... The colors are very interesting. Like, how does the clothing of the people and the colors of their clothing impact the story? Okay. Or even like the red all the Yeah, there's like red that relates to each other. Anyway. See the, the two dreams up on the top there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have the two dreams that are here? And a cat under the table. <laughs> a cat under the table. Angry, angry okay. cat. Yeah, the cat was in, mentioned in verse uh, 34. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay, there's a cat in the picture. There is uh, like handcuffs, but uh, on their feet. Yes. Yeah. There's there's an indication of that they're prisoners. You've got you got shackles on their feet. I also like wish I had an auditorium. Like what? What are they saying? <laughs> So they're they're interacting. Right. There's he's there's some kind of something. Yeah. Doing something on the scene. Yeah. 
I'm wondering who is who. Who is I who? Okay. Just the two prisoners, you can see. Mm-hmm. But then who are the other people? And you can see the dreams above those two people. Right. Well, I think Joseph is the one with the red Okay. okay. And then I don't know if there's the map, the master of the prison in the background or okay so there's this little guy back here that's kind of peeking out from behind who is that yet okay who is that the other three I'm somewhat confident at some good looking ribs in the middle of the table (laughs) good looking ribs in the middle okay Anything else? Anything else? Anybody's burning to say? There's a cat. Yeah, there's a cat. Or the or the stairs going up to the stairs. Yeah, there's stairs on. Why? It doesn't look like a prison. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't look like a prison. So if it isn't a prison, then it must be the house of the the man who superintends the 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 the, um, prison. Okay. Or even like those two cups, right? Or like. Like the man with the red, whoever. The man with the red, there's. Oh, sorry, the one with the red hat. Red, 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 okay. He's serving the other two. They have like cups. Yeah. And then is there bread for all three of them? Yeah. There's bread on the table. Yeah. Joseph doesn't have shackles. Assuming the guy standing is Joseph. Mm -hmm. Okay. The guy with the uh, Asian hat, it's kind of worried. This guy here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The position of his hand. Yeah. It looks like his like shirt is like coming off too. It's like sitting up. Guy on the right? Yeah. Which guy? This guy here? Oh, like yeah, over here? The sleeve or something like that? Okay. okay. Well, like I said, I am not the master interpreter in, in <laughs> of art, but I'm going to give you some idea of what I've been able to observe and some of the conclusions that I've drawn about this picture. And to do so, that just will kind of take us through at least the outline of the actual story of the interpretations and that kind of thing. But then there's going to be something else about interpretation that I want us to enter into. So this will give us a start. First of all, this is a round composition. It's a painting that's in the round, which is a very unusual shape. But the artist also uses that to an advantage. I kind of enter into the pictures through these stairways. So, interesting, Larry points that out. And you can follow the movement kind of in a circular way around the picture. And it kind of follows along the ground and up the leg and over the arm and through the dreams and then kind of comes down the doorway. And one of the focuses is this pointing finger that's down on the table, which is round here. And there's a lot of round things of the dreams and the bread and a plate and the hats. There's all of these elements about composition that make things relate to each other and bind the story together. I think it's pretty safe to assume that this is Joseph and that this is the cupbearer and that this is the baker. And that these are his dream, the dreams that are, that are uh, above each of the heads here. Now, the artist has taken a little bit of artistic license. The dreams don't look exactly like how they're described. I mean, there's not a branch with three, or a vine with three branches. There's not three baskets on it. But we'll forgive him for that for right now. But where Joseph is pointing, I believe, is where he's also interpreting their dreams. 
So where he's pointing to, you can move your way or your eye through several things that are going on here. And the first thing that he points to is this cup here. And I believe that that is his first in, in dream interpretation for the cupbearer. And that the cupbearer is receiving the news that, yes, you are going to be restored to your position. You will again hold Pharaoh's cup in your hand and serve him. So he has a cup in his hand. He's going to have the cup and be restored to his position in that regard. So his gesture, in a way, with the flying cloak and everything, could be something of like, oh, this is great. Now, you know, it's not like the action shots that we usually get, but for that time, even though it's stilted, it's like, oh, this is like a movement. His arm is upraised. He's either describing the dream or it's like, hey, this is great news, that kind of thing. So you come to the cup and the cupbearer, and that kind of relates to his dream. You're going to be restored. However, he also points through... And he comes to the ribs, and he also comes to bread, and those little elements there on the table. And those can relate to the baker. All right? Now, what did he say about the baker's uh, uh, ending up as? He's not going to be restored to his position. He's going to be there. He's going to face death. And what's interesting within the verses that we read, for the cupbearer, Joseph said, one. Pharaoh will lift up your head, meaning you will be raised, you'll be uplifted. For the baker, he said, your head will be lifted up from you. And what some of the uh, commentaries have mentioned is, is that that might also be an indication of decapitation, that his head is going to be cut off. So I wonder if this little knife next to a piece of bread here doesn't kind of clue you into like, oh, there might be some decapitation happening here. But then it's also, what in the world is that? Slab of ribs doing in the middle of that. Well, I think that also relates to what he says about his death. He will be hung on a tree, and what will happen? The birds will eat the flesh of your body. So that that thing there might be an indication of that uh, omen of your your flesh will be eaten by the birds, and then his attitude is how Josue described it. He's got the clenched fist. His head is down looking. He's in sorrow, very contemplative about it. But when you follow through here, his finger down, you come to this cat. Now, what is that cat doing there? Now, this is the best that I was able to do. Now, I haven't been able to find a scholarly interpretation about this painting, so this is my guess, all right? As I tried to find out what do cats mean in the paintings made back in, like, 1500, there's a possibility that this cat is an emblem of a harbinger. Like, this is something that will happen in the future. So it's like an indication of what he's interpreting will come to pass. So the cat is like a symbol that this, that what, how Joseph is interpreting these dreams will come to pass. Okay? So we're going to leave that for right now. There's more to it. But where I wanted to go from that in terms of interpretation is, is asking a few questions about this picture and the people who would be looking at this picture, apart from us. It made me wonder, as we're talking about the narrative and the story of Joseph, we're looking at Joseph's life, and we're moving through his story, and as uh, was pointed out to us in the first week, um, what's recorded of Joseph's life is pretty extensive. Thank you. i got too many things up here. And I think that 
we can find uh, within chapter 40, um, this is one of those uh, accounts also where Joseph does a lot of speaking. Not only is he giving the interpretation to the baker and to the cupbearer, but I also think he's reflecting or giving a hint as to how he thinks about his own situation, of where he's at at this moment in time, in this place in the story. Uh, so what I thought of was, if Joseph were to be here and looking at this picture, how would he interpret what's going on here? What are the kinds of things that would be going on in his thinking as he thinks about himself in this position how would he interpret this, this, this picture? Um, some of the things that we've already seen though, so far, though, as a way of reminder and refreshing, if we look back on the chapters that we've already covered, in Genesis chapter 39, we have known that he was given some dreams from God. Or he thought that they might have been from God. He certainly felt that they were important. And he told them to his family. And those dreams indicated that in some way he was going to be in a position over his family. He wasn't the one that interpreted those dreams, though. It was his family members that looked at them and said, oh, wait, you think you're going to be ruling over us? But for some reason he felt that there was an importance to those dreams and maybe an indication of what would be transpiring in his life. Maybe he was equating that also with the dreams that his father had. His father had dreams also in the past. So it's kind of like, hey, my dad had these dreams from God, had a vision, wrestled with God. Maybe this is important for me to pay attention to. Maybe this is something that God has uh, given me to think about. Um, also, in Genesis 39, we moved through those last week. There's a phrase here that was used over... That we, that we have been drawn attention to, that the Lord was with him. The Lord was, was uh, working alongside of him, organizing circumstances. Uh, the Lord was with him, and it kind of brackets the, the prior chapter, um, chapter 39. It begins and ends with the, with the phrase, the Lord was with him. And in light of that, then also, in chapter 39, because people saw that the Lord was with him, He found favor. I'm using the, the verses up there if you want to turn to those and read them. I'm not going to try to read every one of these verses. It would take a little too much time. But he found favor in the eyes of those people with whom who he came in contact with. So it was true about Potiphar. And it was true about the, uh, the jailkeeper. That they put, them, put him in charge of, uh, of managing things and left him on his own didn't have to worry about him at all in terms of what he was doing or how he acted, how he administrated those kinds of things. So there's things about Joseph's life that are indicated by, from the scripture that says, hey, this is kind of good. You know, God has given me uh, you know, some insight. He's helping me get along with people. I'm running some things here. So that's on one hand. But I can't help but think that Joseph is also reflecting on what his actual situation is. And we'll find in Genesis chapter 40, verses 14 and 15, I think gives us a little bit of an insight into uh, the way that Joseph was thinking at this moment. If you look at chapter 40, 14, I'm sorry, 40, and verses 14 and 15, 
This is what he says to the cupbearer after he interpreted his dreams. He said to me, after you are restored, only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So he kind of uses these words that uh, give a clue as to what was also going on in his thinking. He uses the word in Genesis 40 that he was stolen. He was stolen. When, uh, when the laws were introduced later on in Israel's history, it was, it's described that if you take a countryman or if you take someone from your family and you sell them as a slave, that's comparable to him being stolen out of his family. Already this is kind of an idea that Joseph is thinking, well, wait a minute, I didn't have any control over this. Somebody just kind of up and took me. He was stolen. He was separated. Excuse my writing. He was separated from his countrymen. He was separated from his family. Um, Nate last week described that going to Egypt was probably one of the worst situations that you could, he could have ever faced. Nobody really wanted to go to Egypt because it was, uh, it was just one of the horrible um, countries that treated people lousy and, and, and then on top of that, he's a slave. So, um, he was also falsely accused. Mm. All right, we saw that in the prior chapter last week, that when he was uh, dealing with Potiphar's wife and uh, resisting her, her, uh, her words and her temptations and that, when he, when he rejected her, she falsely accused him. So it's not, it's not like he uh, uh, was able to uh, rectify that situation. Everything worked against him at that point. Potiphar put him in prison. Over, he was angry, put him in prison. And essentially, Joseph is saying, but hey, I'm innocent of that. This isn't fair. Plus the fact then, well, that also left him imprisoned. And this is mentioned a number of times in our reading from chapter 40. Um, not, only were, not only were the uh, cupbearer and the baker put in prison, but it reiterates these people were in prison. They were in custody. They were, you know, it, 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 just, it makes a strong emphasis that they are bound within a situation that they cannot... Can you see, Joe? Okay. So in prison, and finally, of course, as we also mentioned before, that you know he had been a, he had become a slave in that regard. So while yes, on one hand we can see, okay, the Lord was with him, things were kind of good on one level. On another hand, these were also working and also true about him at the same time. Okay? This doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, when you initially think about it, when there's a contrast like this, this doesn't seem to make sense at all. 
And I kind of feel like I'm hearing uh, in verse 14 and 15 that Joseph is kind of saying, well, what's going on here? Why am I in this situation? Why, after seeing all the ways that God can be working in and through me, why am I also facing these kinds of situations? And it's not only true that uh, he found this, found these to be um, the circumstances that he was in, but there's also a couple other factors. And one of them is, is that this happened over a period of time. Time is also a, a big emphasis in these verses. That It says in 40, verse 1, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense. So this is a short-term kind of uh, situation that Joseph finds himself in. Mitch first mentioned uh, in the uh, first week that um, Joseph had the dreams when he was 17 years old. These events are probably happening at least about 13 years or so later on. So this wasn't like, like two or three days that he was facing this. This was happening over the course of a lot of time and as he's getting older. And then also, the last part of uh, chapter 40, he's been left as forgotten. Okay, left as forgotten. I can just imagine that Joseph, as he would be looking at this picture at this moment in time in his life would have these kinds of questions of why is this happening to me? Why are these things so oppressive when at the same time I'm seeing God work in other ways? It's like both of them just don't seem to be compatible. This just doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense. But within this story also, he makes a declaration which kind of then refers back to what God is doing when he says, do not interpretations belong to God. He said these to the, to the cupbearer and baker and saying, yes, tell your dreams to me because God's going to be able to interpret those dreams on your behalf. That's another way that kind of triggers in my thinking that he would say to himself, well, why isn't God interpreting what my life is about right now? Why hasn't he given me the interpretation of what these dreams that he gave me back when I was 17 years old mean? He, he would be kind of like baffled as to this, this, uh, these series of events not making sense. So I kind of feel like Joseph might have, in a way, the same kind of emotional response that the baker might have had, that he can be downcast, that he can be um, that he can be stuck in a way, that he can be like at the point of despair. So at where at what point then can we understand whether or not we have an insight as to what God is actually doing within these within Joseph's life right now? Is there a way for us to have an idea of how God is interpreting what's going on right now. And I'm glad that you ask. Because <laughs> if you can turn with me, please, to Psalm 105. 
and I wrote uh, page 504, if you're following along in the black books. And I want to play with the idea of God, God being like this guy that's back here in the background looking in on the scene. That God is kind of like an observer. Now I'm playing loose with what this painting actually might be about, but this little figure back here kind of fits in with what, what God might be doing in terms of looking in on the circumstances, looking at Joseph and going, okay, I'm watching you. I'm observing what's going on. Psalm 105 is written by a psalmist who is describing in totality an appreciation and a praise for how God has worked for the nation of Israel. And the psalm covers from the verses uh, that he writes about all the way from when God gives promises to Abraham all the way to the fact that they now have entered the promised land. So it's describing a big picture for us that the nation of Israel, starting with the promises given to Abraham, God followed through on his promises, led Israel through all these different circumstances, and finally they have arrived in the land of what they were promised, and now the psalmist is giving praise for that, for that, for that, um, that conclusion. And he, the psalmist also selectively picks out individuals to highlight who participated and how God fulfilled those promises to Israel. And he chooses Joseph as one of those persons to highlight. So if we look at uh, Psalm 105, and we're going to be reading verses 16 through 19, where it says, When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So you have a God-ordained famine that happened in the land, and Joseph is focused on, as in verse 17, it says here, I'm going to change my marker colors, that God sent Joseph. God sent Joseph, but he was sold as a slave. So just like we saw, okay, this doesn't quite make sense, this compatibility. Does this kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. This idea of God sending Joseph, but wait a minute, he was sent as a slave. It doesn't seem to be making sense at all. But yet it shows that the, in the prominence of God that this was a plan that he was going to use Joseph in a certain way. So even though there's an incompatibility or a seeming incompatibility in our thinking, there's something greater that needs to be uh, observed within what's being described here in the, in the psalm. Um, it, also, it also says that, you know, adds that you know, the suffering that Joseph went through And kind of gives a little bit more of a harsh description that he was bound in chains, that his neck was put in irons. 
So he was not, you know, this kind of painting here kind of makes it look like, oh, things are well and good and that kind of thing. But he was still not in a very good situation or good place and was not treated very well. But what was the reason why that God was, was doing this? Well, in verse, <clears throat> in verse 19, it says, when, Until what he had said came to pass, now this is describing Joseph, until what Joseph had said came to pass. Well, what does that mean? Until the word that Joseph had said came to pass. There's different um, ideas as to what that is. It could be until what Joseph described as his dreams first to his family came to pass. When that came to be realized as one option. It could also be when his, his interpretations of the dreams to the baker and the cupbearer came to pass at that point. Or it could be the word that Joseph said of like, hey, remember me, when, you know, put in a good word for me to Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh then was saying, okay, I want, I want Joseph uh, here. Um, it's not quite clear as to exactly what, what Joseph was, um, I'm sorry, until what he said came to pass exactly means. But in some way it is like the, either the dreams or his own dreams or the dreams here. That, but until that, that came to pass, it says here that the word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. Okay. And what this means by testing means that Joseph was going through a refining process. This is like how they purify gold. They put gold and gold ore through a fire so that everything that is not gold is is separated so that you're left with something that is pure and more refined. So even though Joseph was, as a slave, all these different kinds of situations, God was using that time to refine him and to bring out those qualities that he wanted to see in Joseph. So let's turn back to, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 40. And we're going to look at some of those qualities that, Joe, that God was trying to uh, work on and what he was observing in Joseph. Um, I can go back even back to Genesis chapter 39 uh, when we described that he was uh, found favor in that, in the eyes of other people. Well, that could be an indication of trustworthiness. trustworthiness and leadership. Everything was left in Joseph's hands and they didn't have to worry about a thing. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 4, This is chapter 40, verse 4. It says, The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. This idea of attending them meant he was a servant. 
He was put in a place of humility. And service. He was already a prisoner, but then he was also willing to be put down even as a servant of prisoners, as uh, even a lower station to come under. In verses 6 and 7, it says, When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody, Why are your faces downcast today? Well, because he had spent so much time with them, he was able to see a change in their mood and their attitude, and he was inquiring about them. He was concerned about them. He had compassion. I think I probably put my things a little too close together there. So sorry, squishy. But he had compassion on them. He saw that they were troubled. He was entering into the fact that they were in need or that they were in some kind of um, suffering themselves. And he desired to do something about it. And he inquired after them. Uh, when they said that he, uh, when they told him about uh, the fact that they had dreams and that they had no inter interpretation uh, available to them, well, Joseph answered with confidence. He had confidence. He said, do not interpretations belong to God? He knew who the source would be for interpreting their dreams. Plus the fact that when he was telling the cupbearer, hey, when you get out of here, remember me to Pharaoh. He interpreted the dream three days before it was going to happen, but yet he was confident enough that it was going to happen. And so he said, well, when it does happen, I want you to put in good word for me to Pharaoh. So he had confidence. He had confidence in, in God. Um, and as hard as it was for him to face those two individuals, he told the truth. Whatever God revealed to him, them about the about uh, the interpretations, if he was going to be truthful about it, both the good and the bad. There was a man's life at stake in both cases. And one was going to be put back in a rightful place, the other one was going to face his death. But he told the truth. He didn't have any complaining in verse 15. didn't complain. He didn't point fingers and blame anybody for what his situation was. Even though he said, I am innocent, um, he didn't say, because my brothers did this to me, or because Potiphar's wife did this to me. He said, I'm innocent. But he didn't complain about it. And finally, also, because of the time that was at the factor, he had endurance. was another quality that God was looking for in Joseph's life. Now how much we how much Joseph would be aware of all of this going on in his life is hard to say. Um, we know that his security, his trust was definitely in God. 
But as much as he went through the hard situations, the suffering that he went through, his conduct and his attitude expressed an understanding of who God is and a dependence on him. So he was looking past what was happening to him and looking to the person of God as the one who could be the one to make sense of what was going on with him. I think that as we face kind of similar situations, now I, I know we're not going to be slaves, I know we're not going to be put in irons per se, but there are times in our lives when we are suffering, when we can also find those occasions where there's a death in the family, we go through a long-term illness, there's a way that we lose a job or something like that, that there are times when emotionally we can relate to the kinds of things that, so, that, that Joseph was going through. And we can get stuck there. This, this kind of thing, if we just were to look on this side of the chart, we could get stuck just by saying, I'm going through all of this. Why am I going through this, God? I was hoping that this was going to happen. And we can become driven to despair. Or we can get angry. Or we can get frustrated with where our lives are at. We can acknowledge God to a certain point, but at the same time it's like, then, well, we're not, we're not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to sit here and stew and be in despair about it. But if I were to look at the qualities that Joseph was uh, displaying, that God was observing, I would kind of put a, uh, a tag on that, a word that would kind of encompass, I think, what was going on, that is one that gives... Um, an idea of being active in spite of this, not to be stuck, but to be active, I would look at these words as describing obedience. And I would add to this up here what we would face as to Remain obedient. Oh, I wanted to put God in there. Remain obedient to God. Remain obedient to God, even when life makes no sense. These qualities that Joseph was was developing were going to have an outworking that was active and obedient to God's greater purposes that we saw in Psalm chapter uh, 105. Now, this artist here, we've already made a couple of observations that this looks like a bedroom, this doesn't look like it's a jail, all that kind of stuff. What's the deal with the clothing? Well, the artist, I think, put this setting in a contemporary framework for his time. This is what these rooms, what this clothing is that looked like where people were at in 1500. So by doing so, the artist is saying, well, I want the people today who are looking at my painting to see something about themselves to relate to from Joseph's story. I want to contemporize it. 
And I think that that's what we need to be doing also. So when we are looking at this story, when we're looking at this picture, when we're looking at the life of Joseph and these kinds of things, what are the, the ways that we should be interpreting our circumstances today that are not unlike what Joseph was going through? And I want to take us to the final passage here. I'll try to get this, which is in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And here the writer of Hebrews is talking to Hebrew believers who have been facing persecution, who are facing suffering, and yet the writer of Hebrews is giving them a word of encouragement and saying, this is what I want you to think about or how I want to encourage you as you are facing these hardships. And it's not unlike how he would talk to possibly Joseph and especially how he would talk to us today. So if you can turn to Hebrews chapter... 10, and we're going to read chapter, or verses 32 through 36. The writer says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Okay? So, here again, we see that contrast. You're enlightened, and then you suffer. seems to be a pattern that we see throughout this, that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in God, suffering is going to be part of the package. It's not going to be avoidable. As much as we would like to avoid it, or, or that kind of thing, it's, suffering is going to be a part of our life. He goes on to say, you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the pl plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better position, possession and an abiding one. I kind of like to think of the, uh, verse, the words in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. I kind of equate that to what Joseph was going through. He had compassion on those who he were suffering along with. They were suffering along with him. He had compassion on them. He could relate to them. The things that we go through, the hardship in our lives, we can probably find ways to identify with people who are going through the same way. We can bring them the word of encouragement that we know that we get from God. And then in uh, verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Okay, so you had enlightened, you've suffered, you need endurance, so that when you have done the word, word, will of God. And that's where the obedience is. When you have done the will of God. The will of God may not be entirely revealed to us, but we certainly know obedience has been revealed to us. We know those things that we are to be obedient to. And we can see some of those even brought out in Joseph's life. Acts of service, trustworthiness, integrity, telling the truth. These are things that uh, when we are obedient, we are certainly aligning ourselves to the purposes of God, the greater purposes of God. We began with, um, in the first week, 
that um, God works in us in order to work through us. If we are going to be just focused on our suffering and our hardship, there's not going to be anything working through us. It's all just going to stay stuck within us. The obedience that we need to be uh, following are means of God, letting God interpret our lives. We are accepting the fact by being obedient that it is God that is one who makes sense of our lives, even if we don't have a complete picture, even if we don't have the full understanding of what's going on. And that our efforts to try to interpret it are going to certainly be incomplete. I don't have a full understanding of this picture. I don't know why there's a bed. I don't know why it's in a bedroom. I don't ultimately know why there's a cat. There's things in here still that I'm not going to be clear on what's going on. The same will be true in our lives. But it's important for us to be obedient. Obedience is made clear to us by God. Um, and also obedience is active. It keeps us from being stuck in our own misery or doubt or despair. Obedience keeps us active so that God's greater purposes can be carried out through us. And as Nate reminded us last week, that um, God keeps his promises. God is faithful to his promises. God's presence with us is going to be faithful. Now, I I'm, I'm purposely have not described what are those promises. Because where this chapter ends is with Joseph being forgotten in prison. So we know that there's a rest of the story. But there's also a rest of the story for our lives. Where we're at today, we can't see into the future, so we might feel sometimes that we're forgotten or that time has gone too slow or that we're suffering for too long in our, um, in our hardships. But we have a God who is um, overseeing our lives, who we should be entrusting to interpret our lives, and then we should also seek in light of that to remain obedient to God even if our life doesn't make sense. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the word. We thank you for your word of promise. We thank you that you are with Joseph and that you are with us today, that you strengthen us, and that you desire to see uh, greater things worked out in our lives, that you are refining us and purifying us, Lord, for your purposes. May we be willing and open to follow your way and, and um, may we entrust our lives more and more to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.